Hey everyone, this is Charlie Levine, and you are listening to the Angler's Journal Podcast, brought to you by Angler's Journal Magazine. If you're looking for a different fishing magazine that really prefers long-form writing, great storytelling, amazing photos, check out Angler's Journal. You can go to anglersjournal.com to pick up a subscription or pick it up in Barnes & Noble or Books A Million, Publix. It's all over. Um, check us out. You won't regret it. All right. Well, today I am really stoked to have a good friend of mine here on the pod joining us for the first time, a newbie. Um, he and I go back quite a few years, I guess. It's kind of funny. We sort of grew up in the same part of the world, but fish the same waters and Long Island Sound and South of Montauk and all that stuff. But we didn't really get to know each other till I moved down to Florida and came across him at tournaments and I don't know we just became friends and we've gotten to travel together and do some cool stuff so without further ado welcome to the podcast Mr. Anthony DeJulian Tony 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 what's up Charlie it's great to see you I appreciate you stopping in on your way to the Miami Boat Show and uh, it's an honor and a thrill to be on this podcast this is my first ever podcast so popping a cherry here Yes, yes. And well, it's, you know, it's a good medium for you, Tony, because a lot of the world's always like, Tony, it's enough already. But this is it, man. You get to let it roll. Just say what's on your mind. <laughs> we can talk about anything you want. Um, but I guess if you could just start with sort of introducing yourself to our listeners and um, let them know how you got into the sport. I know you grew up fishing with your family and stuff. How did it all start? Well, yeah, Charlie, interesting story. I grew up, uh, I was actually born in Beaufort, South Carolina. My dad was serving in the Navy, uh, born at Paris Island Marine Hospital. And when he got out of the Navy, he decided he wanted to move in a central location to both uh, my mom's parents and um, his parents because we had a very tight family. So we moved to Connecticut right on the Long Island Sound. And uh, that way we were close to upstate New York where my one set of grandparents were and out on Long Island, my grandmother and my dad's sister, Gloria. And uh, as time went by, that progressed into my aunt Gloria being married to a, a guy by the name Captain Bill Dunn. And he had a charter slash business uh, boat, a uh, sport fishing boat out of Shinnecock Inlet, Long Island, New York, a 38-foot Columbia Custom Nice. Built by the Skopinich brothers. Oh, down here. No, it was built up there, oh, actually, okay. back in uh, back in the uh, late seventies and uh, early eighties, I believe. The boat was actually, I think, built in in nineteen eighty. I want to say, but prior to that, he fished uh, nineteen foot mako. He came from Maine, uh, had a background lobster fishing with his family, and real outdoors type of a guy from Maine. And so, anyway, I started going out there in the summer times, and uh, just every. Everything from a week to then two weeks to becoming a guy on the dock that dragged ice and chipped ice. Back then, we carried blocks of ice down the dock, believe oh, it or yeah. not. Getting a little, uh, revealing my age a little bit. But uh, yeah, and then eventually just worked my way up. He saw me through the whole th process. I fell in love with just everything about it. The tackle, the ocean, the boat, changing oil, chipping ice. I, I didn't care what it was. If I was around the ocean, around the docks. Uh, that's where I wanted to be, and uh, uh, that's how I ended up deciding that's what I was going to do for a living. That's cool. Yeah. I, you know, knowing how enthusiastic you are about fishing now at this point in your career, I could just imagine you as a kid probably just wanting to get your hands dirty and get into it. 
Yeah, I was I was obsessed with it. Even when I was home in Connecticut, I would just in the summer times I would sit at the end of this dock with a cane pole or a little spinning rod and just catch snapper blues and uh, harbor blues and bluefish and things like that off the dock. And my parents could just leave me there with the older gentlemen who were fishing, and I would just sit there for six, seven hours at a time, and That's I cool. was happy as could be. So it's always been in my blood, and I just got more and more into it. And my, and I was very fortunate, too, because my uncle was the type of guy that he wasn't going to give you any type of favoritism because you were part of the family. I actually had to be work harder. Uh, you know, he was the guy that taught me the importance of keeping a logbook. He made us do a log every single week. He made us turn it in at the end of the week, and he would read it. And if he saw that we fudged it or that we were just mailing it in, he would literally have a little surprise for you. Like, you'd go down the dock the next day thinking that you were going to be working the cockpit as the mate and he'd have all the fiberglass stuff out by the dock box or the fish box and say well you're gonna stay on the beach today and uh oh, no. you're gonna fiberglass the fish box because you didn't do your logbook correctly so things like that which uh, became invaluable uh, as I got further along in my career and eventually left Shinnecock and uh when I graduated high school from Fairfield Prep, I actually got on a boat called the Grand Crew, owned by Bob Fairchild, Rothschild Wines, captained by uh, Joe Bronozuski, Captain Ski, and uh, we came south from Shinnecock to West Palm Beach, Florida. I rented my first apartment from Bob Schneider, Schneider Lures, uh, me and Jamie Hummel, who's a still a very dear friend of mine and a bayman and commercial fisherman up in Shinnecock to this day. And uh, off we went. And, uh, yeah, that was the start of all of it. That's really cool. And to go back to some of those lessons your your uncle was teaching you, you know, I've seen it. I've been on boats where you were, you know, in charge of the cockpit and all the rigging and, you know, details. Details, details, details. Well, a couple of cool stories. Well, one story was my first Mako shark. Uh, you know, I'm into conservation, and I'm sure we'll get to that, but – Prior to me catching my first Mako shark, about a week, 10 days prior to that, my cousin Christy, actually, we caught one and harvested one, about 310 pounds, a nice fish. And, of course, we we knew how to process everything and use all the, you know, not waste anything. We ate everything that we harvested. But anyway, uh, about 10 days later, I had a fish. It was my first fish, and I was a young, you know, I was about 11 at the time, 12. I had, before I worked for him. And I wanted to kill that fish and get a picture of it hanging from a scale for sure. Um, and when we got that fish up to the side of the boat, he had me come out of the chair and come and look at it. And right up until the last minute, I was for sure excited that we were going to bring a shark back to the dock. And then he he cut it free and let it go. <laughs> oh, man. And he said, hey, our freezer is full of mako shark meat. There's no reason for us to harvest this fish. And that was my first, you know, I was a little, I was a little angry about it <laughs> for a couple of days, but I'm not going to lie. But anyway, it taught me uh, that was right there was a lesson. And then, uh, you know, up there, everything, everybody's tuna centric. Everything was all about the tunas, the big eyes and the yellow fins, especially out of Shinnecock and uh, going to the canyon or the 31 fathom finger. But there was a lot of white marlin around. And uh, my uncle, one year I showed up. Uh, for work, and he had all the reels on the boat, the 30 and 50s. He had them all strung up with with uh, DuPont Golden Strand yellow line. This is 1982 or 83, I want to say, and 
everybody on the dock was kind of laughing about it and you know nobody really had used any type of high visibility line before and he had made his mind up he had him and my aunt were into fishing so they would go they went to walker's key and fished with billy black uh several times chartered over the years during the winter uh they went to tropic star lodge several times fished there they went to kona hawaii i have a cool picture with my cousin christy when she's very little with a blue marlin with bobby brown actually before i had ever even had met or knew bobby brown Um, no problem yeah no problem yeah really cool stuff but so they knew a lot about in my about different types of fishing and he got it in his mind that you know all these white marlin that were everybody thought were a nuisance he says i want to we're going to try to catch them so he went light on on, on so he went lighter line and he went high vis so that we could hook you know that's the first time i learned that you could just keep going in a circle when you're trolling bait and keep hooking fish and next thing you know you have two three four Mm -hmm. fish on and uh, we ended up, I think we caught 103, we caught 103 uh, white marlin that summer. Jeez. And, uh, you know, we didn't tag a single one of them. We probably killed a dozen of them. We put them, you know, we smoked them and ate them um, frequently. Was that like in the late 80s? That was 82, 83. Okay. Because I remember there was 80s. one year, you know, my father had a 40-foot lures. We didn't do a ton of trolling offshore. We did a lot of shark fishing. But there was one year there was a lot of white marlin, like, 10 miles south of Nantucket. And that was the first billfish I ever caught on my dad's boat. Yeah, there, used, there was good white marlin fishing up there. And they, like I said, they not only did they have their boat there and know all the tactics from the Northeast, but because they traveled to Tropic Star and Kona and mm-hmm. the Bahamas, they picked up an oar. My uncle was actually worked for Schlumberger. What is that? As an accountant. It's a huge company like in the oil, back in the day in the oil industry a french company he was their accountant he was a brilliant guy and uh so he used every bit of his knowledge in fishing as well all his education and logic and from for navigating or picking where we were going to go fishing so he was very very smart and kind of was a trendsetter and always looked ahead and saw ahead and uh so that was very fortunate that i had him as my original mentor yeah so so then you get down to florida and you start spreading your wings and get the travel bug yourself um who was the next guy? Uh, well, very fortunate to be on that boat, the Grand Crew, with Bob Fairchild and Joe. They took me in. Joe and his wife took me into their home and treated me just like a son and was over there for dinner all the time. And then a couple of guys that um, really took me under their wing for no reason whatsoever were uh, Captain Bobby Grant, uh, for some reason, took a liking to me and uh, took me under his wing a little bit. Uh, Jackie Morrow who just recently passed, he did me a couple of really big solids when I was a, a kid. Um, so those are the first the first couple of guys. Um, and then I got noticed by a boat called The Drummer, a guy by the name of Richard Sachs ran a 55-foot Hatteras, one of the real tricked-out ones at the time, like 1985, 86. That's a big, big boat in yeah, 1985. Yeah, that time. And uh, his, his mate was leaving. He had seen me. Uh, working actually good point for young kids had observed me from the salon working on the boat I was working on and saw my work ethic and approached me and asked me if I wanted to come to work for him on the drummer so that was that was a big break because that was the first time I got to go uh, to the Bahamas we, we actually were the one of the charter boats there in the old old days when the chub key before when they had the member side and the other side and we were us, the unchained, and the blank check were basically there for 
three or four months every season. And uh, that was an unbelievable experience uh, fishing there in those times. The blue marlin fishing and <clears throat> everything, the wahoo fishing, everything, the mahis. It was just a fantastic time to be fishing in the Bahamas. was you know, cool. mid-80s. Um, How old are you, Tony? I have to I'm, ask. I'm 58. I just turned 58 in September. All so. right. A young 58. I'm about half, you know, a little less than halfway. Nah. Yeah, a little less than halfway. <laughs> well, that's cool. And, it, you know, the Bahamas is sort of a fickle fishery. You, it can be really, really good. It can be really, really tough. Um, but it's such a beautiful place. I think that's sort of like the first stopping off point for a lot of people when they start to travel. You know, you can, it's an easy jaunt from Florida, especially Chubb. That's really close. And but then, you know, where have some of the other cool places you've been to? I know you got, well, then, got out and about. Then we did really well on the drummer. That boat got up for sale. Richard became a mentor of mine. I, I was very lucky throughout my career that the captains that I worked for, like, basically really looked after me, um, af even af in between jobs. So when that job was over, one of our charter clients on, that, on the drummer was a guy by the name of Dick Love, Dick and Marge Love, and they who eventually end up owning the real love and the sound machine and having Skip Smith work for them. And oh, yeah. we were his we were his second crew. Uh, his first crew was pretty good, but uh, <laughs> he wanted to upgrade a little bit. So he he actually hired Richard. He asked Richard to come to work for him. And Richard told him that uh, he'd come to work for him, but that Richard told him that, uh, he, that he and I were a team. That's the first time a captain much older than me went to bat for me in that way, he, where he literally said, I'll go, but I have to have my mate with me, which was a huge thing for me, a big confidence booster. And so we did. We went on a 40, we ran a, a 60 Hatteras for him for a few months, but we eventually took over the old Tsunami, which is a 46 Merit. Um, and we took that boat to St. Thomas in 1987. And I was very young, and uh, it was a funny story. <laughs> I was very young and cocky, and uh, Dick Love was a little bit apprehensive about what uh, he was paying us because Richard at the time asked him for a little bit more than what the average guy at the time was making, especially for his deckhand. And I was, and he was giving me a little bit of hell about it. And I told him that uh, I would, he didn't have to pay me for an entire year if we didn't catch twice as many blue marlin in St. Thomas as his team had done, his crew the year before did. Jeez, <laughs> man. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty brazen. Pretty brazen. And uh, and we did. Did I he think, take you up on that, or did he still uh, he, Well, I mean, he, I he, pro he probably would have if we had failed, <laughs> you know. There you go. But he never had to because we, we didn't fail, and we pretty much – we um, – we took care of that actually pretty early in the season. But anyway, we just made a really good team. and That and was a fantastic fishery then, too. I mean, the uh, North Drop and, I mean, one of the best blue marlin bites in the Atlantic. I mean, you have Venezuela, of course. And you did some time in Venezuela, too, didn't you? Yep, fantastic fishery in St. Thomas. Um, one of the other cool things about St. Thomas was when we first got there, very few boats from the mainland had come down all that way, and there was a few charter boats there. There was guys like uh, Ray Waters and uh, Randy Zimmerman, Ray Walters and Randy Zimmerman on the on the Carib Maid, and Dorsey and Jan Lowenhop, and uh, a few other people that were there. And we were basically intruding on their fishing. They had the North Drop to themselves, and you know those guys, Ray and Randy especially. The first day we pulled in the uh, Pecolas. They were in the salon of the 
real love with me and Richard with their charts. Showing you where to go. Showing us where to go and where to fish. Yeah. And that was the back That's then. good etiquette right there. And that was the mentality. Like, people, we just all worked together. If there was a bite going on up the line, we'd call other boats up there. Now, of course, there was only six or eight or ten of us, so it wasn't like a hundred boats were going to show up. So Yeah. But There's special a time. So, that. yeah, so we ended up... So then, uh, let's see, Venezuela. How did I get to Venezuela? I went, I went from the from that job for the real love, and then I went. Uh, what came first? Then the Tyson's Pride came next. That was my first time in Costa Rica. I actually flew to Costa Rica to Flamingo Bay, and uh, started working for Rick and Donna Defio on the Tyson's Pride. Don Tyson, of course, and John Reed was my other mate. Uh, unfortunately, Rick DeVio and John Reed have both passed away um, from various things, and they were two of the best guys I ever met. Uh, I learned a whole bunch about things from John Reed. Uh, he was a recovering uh, drug addict and um, outspoken about it because he used it. He was a success story, and so he was a guy that taught me a lot about redemption right away and, mm. and second chances and to work with a guy like that that had the, the courage an ability to overcome something like that was an inspiration. And then Rick DeFio was just, he was a Hall of Fame guy. I mean, he was always thinking outside the box and coming up with everything from safety features when we did, you know, multi-night traveling situations or uh, fishing and ways to hook fish and release fish. We did a lot of experimenting with circle hooks in those early days with Rick DeFio and his wife Donna was our, you know, she ran the show basically and kept us all in line and they and they were a tremendous asset uh, to me teaching me all kinds of things that um, that I that I never would have known and we did Costa Rica for a couple years there and then made our way up to uh, Cabo San Lucas and uh, in Cabo San Lucas I injured my shoulder surfing really really bad and then uh, had a brief <laughs> six to eight six to eight month interruption of my fishing career to have it reconstructed and that was that was the end of my time on the Tyson's Pride so well that's you know it's pretty interesting couple things there I'd love to hit on first that boat was you know a true globe trotting operation those guys went all over the place and um, I can't imagine how much you could learn from all those different fisheries and the travel and the cultures I know you like to not just get in the boat and go fishing, but when you go somewhere, you like to poke around and talk to the locals and go to the coffee plantations or do all that stuff. So I bet it was really cool like that. And also, I find it so interesting the people you meet through fishing, like the chance to talk with these, you know, really successful businessmen and women who probably can unleash all kinds of advice about things. Um, that had to be just magic. Absolutely. And, and, you get to meet a lot of really different people and a lot of really quality people. Um, opens to your eyes to a lot of things. Traveling always is a great thing because you see just, you know, one, you see how blessed you are to live here in the United States of America, but you also just get to meet people and see that people are people. And in those early days traveling like that, you know, we had, you know, we didn't have plotters. We were very early GPS. You relied on each other. You relied on a lot of times strangers when you pulled into certain ports to be, you know, show you in the right direction. And a lot of the stuff that we learned, we learned as we went because nobody really had been there before or very few had. Uh, so that was always a challenge, but it was, it was 
one of the advantages of working for a guy like Captain Rick DeFio was he was always thinking of ways and asking us our opinions on things. And, um, and we met some incredible people. And one of the coolest things was when we first showed up there in Flamingo Bay, that was the only game in town in Costa Rica. Bubba Carter was there. Um, and uh, Sonny on the wet ass had come over in a 31 Bertram. Randy Gendersey and, the ambu- and then uh, the ambush, John Scruble and the ambush showed up. But um, that's like way on the north side, right? Of yep, Costa Rica, yep, up there, up the Bad Islands, and all that. Flamingo, beautiful area. And um, but anyway, the it was just it wasn't a, there was no sport fishing industry in Costa Rica, yeah. And so we were the first boats to start hiring, locals. you know, the young locals to do stuff for us to wash our boats to come fishing, and they started learning slowly about everything that we did right along with us. And so one of the coolest things for me is, you know, we, we started that. Like, we helped to get those guys into it and stoked about it. And now you look, you go down there, and you see everything that it's become, and I see guys that, you know, they they were my washdown boys. They've now become as good a captain as any captain there is in the world, and their sons are now in their 20s becoming captains and have worked as deckhands. And in this thing in Costa Rica, it's turned into a big, a huge industry for them. I freaking love that. It's, yeah. it's a great opportunity, and like you just you just nailed it. I mean, these young kids can work their way up and and earn more money than their parents, you know, because you're you're working for these well to do Americans. It's uh, it's it's well, pretty cool. When and that not happens. only Americans, people from all over the world. And think about that. So 1993, 1994, 1995, all those years, those opportunities really didn't exist except for the six or eight or ten of us that were there for these people. And then as it grew. Now look at it. So it's not one that long ago. It's pretty quick, and it's a pretty good uh, example of how effective and positive sport fishing and recreational angling can be for any any community, um, especially you know Central and South America, third world nations, places that are struggling to find ways out of economic despair, um, other challenges that they have. You know, a good, healthy, conservation minded recreational fishery is a life's changing thing for for an entire culture yeah that, and that's a good segue to something i wanted to talk about as well because you know you just hit on it it's like if you don't protect your fish though you can obviously fish it out and and then <laughs> then all those jobs go away and all the people go away so conservation you know when done well and done correctly is such a key to everything in this industry um I know you work with the Billfish Foundation and some other groups. Um, how did you get involved in that? And, and how much of your time do you devote to that stuff? Well, I, I got involved with uh, showing up at meetings, conservation stuff, speaking up for the rights of fishermen, speaking up for the rights of the bay, so to speak, uh, up in Shinnecock because my uncle was into that. So he led by example. Always make sure you're there to at least listen to what they're going to propose to do to you and your industry. <laughs> um, and then, you know, hopefully you can get together with some of your friends and, and get your opinion heard. Uh, it's much easier nowadays to actually to do that, although we have more battles uh, to fight. But I just, you know, starting from a young age, learning from my uncle and... From that know, shark. <laughs> just from that shark and just other things. When, you know, you didn't... You know, you know, you, I had lobster traps when I was a kid and a little dinghy I had even at my house in Connecticut on the sound. And, you know, you didn't, I could have caught, I could have brought a hundred lobsters home, you know, but it was like, you, you know, you only need two or three, um, take what you need, 
send the rest back and, uh, you know. Now, you're a commercial fisherman. It's a whole other story. you got to feed people. It's an, the, the uh, ocean is a tremendous resource, and, and the human race is dependent on it. Um, but, you know, greed and all kinds of other factors come into play, and it's really a delicate balance, and, and it's very, very important to be aware of what's going on and to protect, protect that, and it starts right with us being out on the water. Um, I started, you know, back when I first went to St. Thomas, we still killed a couple of blue marlins if it was somebody's first fish, and we weighed them in down there, and we'd cut them all up and make sure everybody got fed and all that stuff. That was always a always that's one thing is always if you kill something you need to make sure every bit of it is used and eaten if not don't kill it period yeah. i mean it shouldn't be you wouldn't shoot a deer just on someone's it. on somebody's you know lease and then go over to it and cut the antlers off of it and leave the carcass there you'd never make it off that person's property and in places like you know alaska and wyoming and colorado they have you know they have laws about that that you can't leave more than a pound of meat in the in the bush when you're harvesting so i i treat fish the exact same way as that number one and we actually have control of it in our hands so how we treat the fish what we you know what we choose to 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 take and what we choose to release and how we choose to uh, behave on the water and then the most important thing is really you got to show up and make your voice heard when when things are not going in the direction that they're supposed to be going. I mean, in, in the state of Florida now with the, you know, especially with our water issues, that's a huge thing that affects all the way from the flats and the rivers and the estuaries all the way out onto the reefs and into the ocean and everything else. And if you're just going to stand by and not do anything about or say anything, then, you know, things are not going to work out real well. But I learned about that stuff at a very young age. Again, very lucky. I had very intelligent, well-educated um, mentors and people to show me the right way. I joined the Bill Fish Foundation the first time on the docks in St. Thomas in 1987, uh, somewhat reluctantly. I was kind of skeptical about this whole release thing and tagging fish. And even in the early days, I kind of fell into some of that, well, the longline boats are going to use the tags to find out where they are and soon found out that that was just complete, really, you know, ignorance, ignorance, (laughs) you know, I I learned a lot over the years, but anyway, was involved right away. Um, IGFA, same thing. My aunt and uncle were into the IGFA. So we were always paying attention to the, to the world records and things like that. But it wasn't really till I got uh, older and had met some of the people here in South Florida that I got into really, um, closely working with the IGFA and doing some of the stuff I do for the Billfish Foundation on an official basis. Um, up and you know, it took a lot of years. I just kind of sat back and learned from other people who were, who started it. Guys like Tim Choate and I've had some incredible mentors like Peter Wright and Laurie Wright and uh, Bouncer Smith. Uh, I mean, yeah. Holy cow. You talk about, I mean, I listen, all legends. Listen, all legends, and I'm telling you right now, anybody that thinks that they're self-made or that, you know, they can do it and they're better than everybody or whatever, um, it's not it's not possible without help from people. And I would say that that's the biggest advantage I've had is that I've had, starting from my parents all the way through, the guys and girls who have mentored me, I, I, you know, that's a, that's the trick. Yeah, no, and, and you got to pass it on, which you love to do. Um, call it education, 
sharing knowledge. I've seen you work with kids. I've seen you running bait rigging stations at boat shows, showing everybody how to rig ballyhoo or set up, you know, planer jigs and all kinds of things. And and you always share that information freely. I've always really respect you for it. And I've always seen how much you enjoy it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. I mean, to this day, I get up every day and I'm very blessed. I love what I do. And I've tried to actually throughout my career. That's the other thing I've always done. Starting again, goes to my uncle. We also worked a day every week. Uh, Mickey Altenkirk from Altenkirk's Tackle back in the day, a guy who invented all kinds of uh, rod butts and, and, and rod seats and, you know, all kinds of stuff, Altenkirk rods and Altenkirk tackle. And I worked in his shop and learned how to do all that stuff too and learned about all that. And then I've always tried, you know, I did a, a six, a three or four month internship one time with George Tracy at Merritt's, uh, learning how to paint and varnish. Um, I've always tried to do, try to learn something about every aspect of our industry um, because it's all exciting to me. And so that's culminated into where, kind of my career went and where I am now, but it's also helped me a lot with all these things and these give backs and helping and uh, doing the seminars and stuff because I'm, I really enjoy passing all that knowledge that I've learned on to other people. And then I also learn, I also love to learn from other people. Like I love to see how some of these young kids today are rigging their baits or doing their teasers or how they're rigging their dredge, um, you know, their dredge pulleys or, you know, the headphones, all this stuff is all new technology for a guy like myself. And I guess some guys are intimidated by it. Um, but I think it's just, you know, everybody's got an opinion, but I just, it's fascinating to me to always keep learning about new stuff and seeing where things are going. So, um, I've always tried to do that and it's, it's helped me, uh, get to where I am now or in my position with Pelagia gear, um, as their tournament director and South Florida, uh, marketing coordinator. Um, and then I still do, uh, I work for all those organizations. I'm into my conservation. I'm always showing up at meetings, making sure that emails are sent to the right congressmen. Uh, we work very closely with Captains for Clean Water. That's been a great organization to be um, starting to get to know and be a part of. Of course, the Billfish Foundation um, and the IGFA as well. So, yeah, that's I, I, I admire you a ton for that and for, you know, putting in the time um, and just doing it because you care. And that's the best reason to get involved in that stuff. And, and these are big issues. Um, and I do want to talk about tournaments because tournaments have evolved quite a bit too. And, and they're more conservation oriented now. And just curious on your take on, you know, fishing tournaments over the years, how they've changed. It's big business here in Florida. It's big business everywhere. I mean, Maryland with the White Marlin Open, Cabo's got the Bisbees. I mean, there's the Gulf has got tournaments every weekend all summer. Very curious. Like, I always think these big tournaments are going to go away and they seem to just be getting bigger. Well, that is a good, that's a good subject. I mean, there are, you're right, there are tournaments everywhere. Um, everywhere you look, every weekend, if you can sneak in a weekend, you're lucky to, to sneak one in without a tournament, and they're happening all around the world. Um, I think overall, for the industry, obviously, it's been a great, it's been a big thing. It's been a boon. It's, it's, a, 
It's great for the marinas that they're held at and the businesses, places like Big Rock and over in, you know, Orange Beach, Alabama and Mississippi and up and down the, you know, White Marlin Oak. I mean, they're, they're bringing all the tournaments are bringing a lot of money to the economy there to restaurants, taxi cab drivers, hotels, you know, people just coming out and looking and seeing what's going on. Um, you know, when when the general public gets to see what's going on, if it perks their curiosity about the ocean or about a species of fish or what these guys are doing, to me, that's a good thing because so many people really don't know what we do. They really don't know what's going on in the ocean. And again, it's just a way to actually, you know, bring the average person in to participate in something exciting. Um, you know, there's good tournaments and there's bad tournaments. Um, some are really strict and, and cater to, you know, strict IGFA rules and really professional anglers and things like that. And other tournaments are strictly for charity to raise money for an awareness for different things. And then, um, you know, other tournaments are known for this guys are fishing them to try to get that, you know, catch that one fish and Mm -hmm. make a million dollars or three or $6 million, whether it be the white Marlin open or the Bisbee's or even our tournament now, yeah, uh, although the rock star. A, yeah, the rock star in Costa Rica and Capos at Marina Pez Vela, although we're not a kill tournament, um, a release tournament, we're starting to get, you know, up there with. Uh, well, but you can still, you can hang a nice mahi oh, yeah, and, and make some big money. Yeah, we've had some, uh, we had a mahi, we had the guy who won mahi this year won uh, $131,000 for, there you go. There for, you for go. two mahis added together. But it's the thing, I, I like tournaments too. I've always sort of been on the periphery, you know, I worked for some tournaments. I helped run tournaments and I know the stress involved in that, you know, any big event is a lot of moving pieces. Um, what would you suggest if there's someone out there who's like, sees the big money, hears about some guy who won eight, nine million in Cabo or something and wants to get involved. What, what would your advice be to this crew or person? Inexperienced guy who's, who maybe or doesn't really, he just kind of wants to get involved and get yeah, one. I'd say, what do you do? Do you charter a boat? Do yeah. You, so if you don't own a boat and you don't have the right equipment, I would charter a boat. I'd research. I'd find the absolute best possible boat that you could charter um, with the best crew that has had experience and has won tournaments in the area you're fishing them. Or I would research the top guys in the industry, and this is another way you could go. You could bare boat charter a boat, get some really famous guy, like a guy like James Roberts or – Myself, when I used to do that with my company, I don't anymore, but, um, you know, Clay Hensley or, you know, there's guys around, Tony Frascone. There's a ringer. Guys, you need a, a ringer. ringer and have him put together a team of really good guys, a captain, crew, the whole nine yards, all the equipment you're going to need, and, and, and a boat that you can use. And It's going to take some dough. It's going to take some money, and it's not going to be, you know, you, but if you don't and you just go in and half-ass it, and you think you're going to compete? Hey, listen. When you're fishing a tournament where it's only one fish that you have to weigh, there's That's always the thing. there's always a chance that you could win it. But once you get that fish on, one you got to get the fish to bite. Two, you got to get them on. Three, you got to catch them. And then four, you got to get them in the boat. And yeah. that can be very very difficult. Every, if you have every no knot experience. matters. Yeah. <laughs> every hook matters. Every everything matters. Yeah. The boat matters. You know, you got you can't have breakdowns. There's a lot involved and you know my advice would be to start small you know enter and we could do a whole we should do a whole nother podcast just on tournaments because it's too much to go over here now but i I would say get yourself in like a dolphin tuna 
Oh, absolutely. If you want to find out, or a rodeo you want to find tournament. out what tournament fishing is about, and you're not just you're not seeing the money, and you're just going for glory, then yeah, start out with your first little. You know, listen, around here we have all kind of St. Anthony's and the Cove, and you know all these different organizations, right. Mission Fishing. We have all these little charity tournaments that are all for fun, and uh, you know they have little little small little Calcuttas for a few hundred bucks and. Yeah, you go in that, you get some friends together, you go out on your boat or your friend's boat and have a great time. Less pressure. No pressure, enjoy the... That's more my scene these days. Yeah, enjoy the moment, enjoy all the other stuff. A lot of these guys, they love to gamble, and I get that, you know, and it's like, you want to go to Vegas and put all your money on roulette, or do you want to go to Cabo and put your money in the tournament and have some fun and bring your buddies and... So if you look at it that way, I totally get it. I'm just like. Yeah, and we have guys that do that for our rock star who have been very successful. They're not full-time fishermen, but they get four guys, five guys together. They charter one of the, you know, Maverick Sport Fishing or Good Day uh, Sport Fishing there in Capos with Ben. Local boats. Local boats, local crews, and, you know, they'll win, you know, one guy won $42,000 for a tuna one team. Uh, my buddy Philip Kyle came down with his guys. They caught a 103-pound yellowfin the last day and got in one of the daily categories. They won thirteen thousand dollars, paid for their pretty much paid for their trip. That's awesome. Yeah. So that, that, that and they were. I bet they had the time of their life. And to me, that's like like when I'm as a tournament director. Like to me, the more people and the more teams that can get a piece and get that experience and getting up on the stage and having a check and feeling what it's like to win. To yeah. me, that's like. I love it. I want to see, you know, I want to see as many people as possible enjoy that. That's and, cool. That's, you, what, that's what we aim to do, actually, with our with our Rockstar tournaments. That's our purpose, is try to get as many people involved, have as much fun. Big boats, small boats. Big boats, small boats, and, and just have a great time and really enjoy our sport and the camaraderie and families and, you know, the culture and all that stuff. So. Yeah, and the banquets and the parties are always a blast. You get to talk shop with people from all over the place and and it's been successful you guys are growing man i couldn't believe when i saw your prize purse because you just had the event yeah we just had january we're actually it's two years in a row but we're the uh, largest tournament in all of central america and central american fishing history we had 94 teams 553 anglers over 1300 billfish released in two days of fishing we weighed over 350 tunas and mahis um had people representing 16 different countries. Uh, we had a top, our female angler also won top overall angler. That's another thing we like is. That's pretty cool. Uh, we had junior anglers. Uh, was that on the fish tank? Was she the one who won? Who won that? Um, it's Adriana Finkelstein, but I just want to make sure I have the right boats. They, they were actually on misbehaving. Misbehaving this year. She caught 14 sailfish and two, two blue marlin for 2,000. Points and she was actually the second lady in the tournament history to win top overall angler as well. Um, in 2021, we had an angler, Joni Smith from the Southern Pride, she won uh, both trophies as well. So, you know, we're into it, we love it. I love it. I've that's the other thing throughout my career, I've always had uh, I've always had like women anglers who I've either helped be a part of their mentorship or teaching Donna Robinson on the can't touch this uh, Sandra McMillan on the Sandman. I worked with her for many years. Of course, what I taught her, it, it pales in comparison with the pros that she has working for her in the last 10 years. That's but, a good crew. Yeah, it's a good crew there. So, um, but anyway, I've always been a big supporter of that. And um, 
Yeah, inclusion. Yep. Inclusion is something that means a lot to me as well. You know, I have a, a kid with special needs and, and seeing how you get treated when you're different. And it's not always easy. And um, you are amazing when it comes to charity and, and giving back. You know, I know what you do around Christmas time. I, I see all the pictures you wrap in presents all for all kinds of people and Pelagic gets involved and, and is fantastic donating product. And it's just remarkable. Like it, it really moves me. And I guess I never saw it as much until I, Cooper came into my life. Um, but it's really cool how much fishermen and, and anglers in general really care. Um, I've seen it when hurricanes happen a lot of these tournaments like the cystic fibrosis tournaments and I mean just so much money's raised and a lot of good coming out of the fishing world and I admire you for that a ton it is thank you and it is incredible that's one of the things I don't think people who are not in our industry they, they don't realize whether it's veterans or special needs kids or disaster relief or cancer research or I mean you could go on and on um the fishing community is amazing. I mean, they stand, they come out and they stand up and they, they're counted and they donate and they're philanthropic and we raise a lot of money for a lot of different things and for a lot of different awareness to a lot of causes. And it's probably at this point in my career, it's my favorite thing about what I do. I mean, I just love it. Um, as you know, as you mentioned, I love, we have a really cool organization down here in, um, Lighthouse Point, Pompano, Fort Lauderdale area called missionfishing.org. We're a 5013C here, and we do all special needs kids. We take them out on the water. We take them fishing, boat rides. We provide services throughout the year for special education and and different things for the school. We do Christmas blessings around Christmas where we do Christmases for people that, you know, need some help that way. But um, it's unbelievable, and it's all volunteer Whenever we do our trips, we reach out to our local boating community and all these people from around here, they donate their boats and their crew and they come and we take these families out. And so great. It's absolutely amazing. It's Uh, so rewarding too. uh, like I've done some of that and you go home with like happy tears in your eyes and just feel good about what you've done and that you were part of the solution and part of improving these people's every day. It's Life can be hard. Life's a struggle. Like, let's go fishing, have fun. Why not raise money? It's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, and, you know, it's true. I mean, I personally, my personal commitment that I've been a part of for the last 15 or 20 years is I I volunteer 25 hours of my month, every month, to some cause in my community. And then I do, I, uh, I donate 10% of my income as well to some immediate need not for a tax write-off or something like that or something right in my community that needs you know attention right away and the greatest thing about all of this is that when you see the results and how it affects people's lives just by showing up for them um, just by taking them out fishing and catching them a little pinfish we've had kids who are five six years old they're out on the boat with their parents They've never said a word in their lives, and they'll catch a pinfish. You'll be working with them, helping them reel in a fish. They'll bring it in the boat, and all of a sudden, they'll look at their mom and dad and go, Mommy, Daddy, fish. Oh, and the kid and the parents just sometimes collapse crying because they're just, they can't believe that their 
all they're all in therapy. All these different things are going through to try to get them to be verbal. And then it's the fish. It's being out on the water and the feeling they're out. And it's just an amazing thing. And then the other part of it is, you know, you got to look at the families, the brothers, the sisters, the caretakers. They're under a tremendous amount of stress. Yep. They have to sacrifice all kinds of things for their siblings a lot. And so for them to get out on the water for a day where they can kick back and just kind of relax is another huge relief for them. And that's one of the other things we try to do. We try to you know, keep the siblings and the caretakers and the moms and dads in mind as well. Um, and I know I'm very excited. Uh, we've got coming up in July with our friend Skip Dana here. Yes. We're going to be doing our own little uh, Down Syndrome father-son fishing weekend right here in Fort Lauderdale, Pompano Beach, Florida. Ah. Uh. I can't even talk about it because I get emotional. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, these kids do love it. And then you're right. It's like you don't have to go far. You could fish off a dock. You could do it. It's just that sense of accomplishment they get. And it's so, um, what's the word? It's contagious. It just, that joy is contagious and it's a beautiful thing. I'm so grateful to you. I'm so grateful to Skip. We're going to be taking a bunch of kids out fishing in July and we're going to have a blast. Uh, I'm going to write a story. We're going to get a photographer on board. Thanks, Pelagic. Um, yeah, stay tuned for that because that's going to be a good one. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. And anybody out here is listening to, you can go to missionfishing.org, and we have a schedule up um, of our trips for 2023, and we'll probably add a few. But if you want to help out by volunteering a, a boat or uh, your time with these kids, um, and you haven't done it before, I'm happy always to help people kind of get into it. Sometimes people are intimidated by it. You know, they don't, they don't know. They kind of feel sorry for the kids or they don't know how to act or, and it's, it's, you know, it does take a little bit of, uh, getting used to and knowledge and being a little bit brave and outside your comfort zone. But once you start doing it, as you know, uh, I look at it as these kids are a gift from God to us because kids are kids. They That's just, I, I mean, well, especially special needs kids though, Charlie, for me, I find that they bring attention to things that maybe I normally wouldn't think about. And just some of the things they say and some of the, you know, just the way they hold your hand and getting to know them. A lot of times I've been doing this a long time now. So I've had personal relationships with some of these families, like my friend, Josh, the Davis family, who's the inspiration behind uh, mission fishing, Josh Davis, we're, he's, we're friends. He's in a wheelchair. Um, I can understand what he's saying. His parents can understand what he's saying, but most people can't, you know, but I know his, you know, he holds my hand whenever we're together. There's little things. And I'll tell you a story. Um, we're in the keys and we're fishing with the main attraction, which is a charter operation down there that volunteers their charter fleet to us once a year for us to take our kids out down there and we're on the boat fishing, and it's getting a little hot. And they take Josh, and they put him on his wheelchair back under the overhang to get him out of the shade for a bit. And I'm standing in the corner with his older brother, Christian, and he's watching me kind of help Christian get some of the bigger yellowtails to bite. I'm working with him on a few, some technique. And all of a sudden, I hear this commotion in the back, and I hear Josh, you know, in his little tone, yelling my name, Tony, Tony. I'm for a second, I'm like, oh, what's up? So I, and I was mom's right there. So I turn around, I put my rod down, I walk up and I, and I lean down and, and I, I lean down. I said, I go, Josh, I go, what's up, buddy? What's up? And he just looks at me and he goes, Tony, I love you. And he, you know, he's watching me. His brother is his hero. 
because his brother takes care of him all the time. He's an amazing kid, this kid Christian. But he's watching me show love to his brother, and he was telling me how much he appreciated it. You know what I mean? It's just amazing that's a, that's, what that does yeah. for you. That's better than any drug right there. <laughs> better than, I mean, if you don't choke up a little bit when you hear stuff like that. So, you know, and that happens a lot. When you get involved with it, stuff like that happens all the time. So yep. I highly recommend, uh, you know, volunteering your time for those who may need a little bit of help, a little bit of inspiration, maybe haven't been, you know, given the same opportunity or health or whatever it may be. Um, it's a very, very well worth time, not just for those people, but, you know, it makes your community stronger. It, it makes your state stronger, whatever state you live in, and it certainly makes your country stronger if you are all uh, working together and helping everybody uh, to succeed. It's better for everybody. So, Amen to that, man. Well, thank you so much for this time. You've been very generous with your time. For all of our listeners who want to learn about your tournament, was it just rockstar.com or pelagicgear.com? You can go to pelagictournaments.com. And uh, we we have all of our recaps and all the stuff about our tournaments up on that pelagictournaments.com. Of course, you can also get to it, pelagigear.com. But, uh, yeah, we do a nice recap with a recap video. We have a real – everything about our team is all internal. We've got some incredible people. Um, I got this – I got an incredible uh, incredible partner, Christina, who, who helps me. She's like our events planner, manager. We joke that she's actually the real tournament director. And then, you know, my buddy Brandon and DJ and Jordan and – Good crew. Um, we got a great – we got a great uh, – a great core group of, uh, of people. And, uh, you know, again, you can't do anything without a good team. And I got to tell you, if without my team, I would not be uh, having the success that I am or would I be ha- I still have the job that I have. So very important to have a good team and people around you. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks again, Tony. This was fun. I'm sure we'll do it again soon. And I'm looking forward to that trip. And, yeah, it's always fun to see you. Take care. Thank you so much, Charlie.